So, good evening. Bonsoir and good Abend. I won't, I won't try and show off anymore. <laughs> I'd like to begin by saying what a delight it is that the John Main Seminar is here in Belgium this year, the 35th uh, John Main Seminar. Each year, a different country within our community uh, hosts it, and there's even some competition, actually, to host the seminar. Uh, but this year, I must say, and every, every year and every seminar is unique and uniquely wonderful, but I must say I've been very impressed by the leadership uh, of the extraordinary team here in Belgium for this year's seminar by uh, Jose and by Hiet. Uh, whenever I spoke to them, I said, how are things going? And they said, oh, fine, everything's going well. I said, any problems? No, no problems. And uh, I really felt that uh, they were organizing this uh, event in a, in a very deeply contemplative and efficient way. And that's why I think we've been welcomed here so uh, warmly and kindly, graciously and uh, efficiently. So thank you very much to you and all of the Belgian meditators who have, uh, have uh, helped to bring us together. And also, before I say a few words about the actual uh, theme of the uh, seminar and open it with a, some a time of meditation, of silence, I'd like to thank the, the speakers who have come. It's quite an extraordinary combination of speakers from different parts of the world and um, who will explore this theme with us from the areas of their own expertise and professional experience, but also from a personal depth, the personal experience of the contemplative, the meaning of contemplation. I'd like to thank Herman Van Rompuy, who will be speaking to us this evening to open the seminar, to Marco Schlorema from Barcelona, Sean Hagen from Washington, Charles Taylor, who will also be helping us during the seminar to synthesize the different perspectives uh, from Montreal, for Rob Johnson uh, from New York, and Barry White from, uh, from Dublin. And the workshops, the workshop leaders are also an extraordinary, the diverse and wonderful uh, group of teachers within our community. Kathy Day uh, from Australia, Liva Bova uh, from here in Belgium on education, uh, Jenny Scott, who will also be our MC, Sister Teresa Fossades uh, from uh, Catalonia, from um, the monastery there, Liz Watson and from England, and Beth Cardoni from the States. So thank you for agreeing to form constituent ele elements of what we hope will be a holistic 
picture, maybe not the final word, but a holistic view on this very contemporary topic. Every day, as I said, we will have a little panel discussion uh, which Charles Taylor will uh, help us to come to a, uh, an integrated uh, view of the different perspectives being offered and then a discussion among the, the panelists which will help us, I think, over the days to come to a more integrated, multi-perspective view of our theme, a contemplative response to the crisis of change. Let me try to describe briefly what this uh, phrase means. The key word, perhaps, is crisis. We hear that word all the time. The world is in a state of crisis, and the newspapers and TV and social media uh, continually maintain uh, this idea that, of crisis. But what does it really mean? There certainly is dramatic change. Crisis is a time where we have a very limited capacity to control change. We don't like to be out of control. If we're driving a car and we lose control of the car, that is crisis. And yet crisis is also the way to a new order of things, maybe through a disaster, maybe through a breakdown, maybe through a, a collapse of something that we treasured and wanted to preserve. Crisis also has this transitional element. We're going through a crisis in order to come out at the end of the tunnel into something greater. But when you're in the middle of the tunnel, we are easily subject to pessimism or despair. Famous Woody Allen quote, the light at the end of the tunnel is the train coming towards you. <laughs> so it's easy to be, in a, uh, 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 to be in a crisis and become even more incapable of steering our way through it or understanding it or managing it bit by bit because we collapse into despair. And one of, the, one of the things we hope for from this seminar, and I think given the speakers we will have that hope fulfilled, is that we will face the reality of the crisis in many different institutions and areas of modern life, from politics to medicine, to church, to uh, science and so on, um, but that we will leave here with an insight, a hopeful insight, into the direction in which we are moving. We will have better judgment. The word krisis in Greek means judgment, and good work, good management, the good life requires good judgment, the capacity for critical thinking. If we don't have that capacity for critical thinking, then we blur the distinction between being a citizen and just being a consumer, between living in a democracy or participating in a mob. Today, we reject judgmentalism 
thinking that if we're judgmental, it means that we are intolerant. But the capacity to judge is critical for well-being, for justice, for fairness and balance. The capacity to see clearly what is really there, to distinguish between our perception and reality, between our filters and the truth. The capacity to distinguish between fake news and real news, and those who accuse the real news of being fake news. And all this is part of the discrimination of education. What education, which is another important element of our seminar, that the education of the whole person is meant to produce this capacity for critical, clear awareness for both the personal and the social good. We cannot separate. One of the key themes, I think, of our understanding of contemplative response is that we cannot separate personal transformation from social transformation. Our capacity for good judgment, for clarity and balance, is essential to what we mean by contemplation of the contemplative mind. The great contemplatives of all spiritual traditions have been fiercely contemporary. They may have withdrawn from the world in many ways, to monasteries, to caves, to the forests. But the true contemplative is also fully aware of the times in which they are living. And if you're aware of the times in which you're living, you cannot feel disconnected from the needs, especially the needs of the poor, the needs of the marginal, the needs of the oppressed, the needs of those unjustly imprisoned, the needs of those who are being neglected in the race for success and wealth. So the great contemplatives of our tradition, like the great prophets of the biblical tradition, have been at the same time deeply immersed and rooted in their experience of the divine and passionately committed to the well-being and the justice and, the, and the, the rule of justice in the societies that they belong to. And I think that is a, a clear justification for the world community for Christian meditation, which is a contemplative community, uh, having a seminar like this. We've already discovered over many years that the fruits and the gifts of meditation uh, can be brought into many areas of life outside of the immediately religious sphere. We can bring meditation, the practice of it, and the fruits of it, to the homeless, to those in recovery from addiction, to uh, MBA students, to business leaders, to doctors and nurses, to scientists, 
to young children at school, to university students. We know from our experience that it is possible for us to do this, and I think we have grown in a sense that this is a responsibility. We could just stay within our own immediate religious identifiable world, but it's difficult to do that when you see, for example, if you see somebody has been knocked down in the street, your immediate impulse is to do what you can within your limits to help them. And I think many people in these critical times do feel knocked down, uprooted, uh, disembodied from, from their society or isolated or lonely. And so if we can share this very simple and yet transformative gift of meditation with them, we do that to the best of our ability. And that leads to a greater reflection, which this, this seminar is really about. What does this contemplative experience that we can share with the great and the small, the young and the old, the powerful and the powerless, what is the, what is the meaning of this contemplative experience for our society as it passes through this time of crisis? And the great contemplatives give us great confidence because they were clear-sighted about the controversies and the crises of their time, and they were courageous in speaking out or dealing with them. The first element of learning this contemplative wisdom or this contemplative consciousness is to see, to see what is there to cleanse the doors of perception, as William Blake described it. And then to hear, to be able to listen to what other people are truly saying, to give them the gift of our attention, rather than just trying to impose our own perspective on them, our own will, we take the time, we make ourselves powerless in listening, first see, then hear, then touch and act. All of these are the natural stages, I think, of contemplative consciousness as it touches the real world of our lives and the real world of our society. The word contemplation comes from the Latin meaning to be in or associated with the temple, templum. But the original meaning of the word temple was not the structure built in stone or in ritual or in, uh, or, or in, in, in thought. The original meaning of the word templum was the space in which the structure could be built. And those structures are mortal. That's why we experience 
crisis and, and change because all of these structures, whether it's our worldview, our theologies, or our philosophies, or our ideologies, these are all mortal. They change, and they change very rapidly today. In the same way, our organizational, bureaucratic, political, social structures are also, can, are also mortal, also change, different forms of government. So whatever we build in this templum is subject to the laws of change. The space itself is eternal, is timeless, is present. So the contemplative mind is aware of both the space and the structure at the same time. It doesn't forget the meaning of the space in which we live, and it is therefore better able to understand the changes through, through which the structures will pass. And for this, I think we need a contemplative practice that will train us and train the mind and train us in ways of living and the art of living and the art of loving. To train us to pay attention, not just to ourselves, not just to our rights, not just to our needs or desires or our protests, but to pay attention pure and simple pay attention to the reality that we belong to, that is greater than us, but of which we are, each of us, an indivisible, an individual part. One of the profound changes in perception, fundamental perception of self, that happens through the practice of meditation, is that Although we don't cease to be an individual, in fact, we discover our own uniqueness more and more clearly, but we, we change our view about what individuality means. It no longer means an isolated individual. It means someone who is a person in relationship to the whole. That's what the word individual individuous originally meant, indivisible. The individual is a discrete particular part, but it cannot be separated from the whole. And it's that integrated, holistic, participatory view of ourselves in relationship to others that becomes a stronger way of self-perception and perception of the world through a contemplative practice. And this is what I mean by saying that personal transformation cannot be separated from social transformation or organizational transformation. The alternative to this are the consequences of living in a state of felt isolation, where we feel ourselves separated and isolated. Because that is fundamentally a fantasy, a delusion. 
However powerful it may be, it's still a delusion, and it will produce the consequences of delusion at the political level, at the economic level, at the social level, and at the religious level, every kind of level. It will make it more difficult for us to see the difference between virtual reality and simple, natural reality. So this contemplative practice is something that is a practical necessity if this contemplative response is to become a possibility or if it is to grow. We see the painful destructive symptoms of the loss of this contemplative consciousness. The sense of excessive speed, accelerating pace of life, which leads to physical st stress and the psychological effects of that. The loss of moral and intellectual safety nets so that as we no longer have unifying worldviews, we no longer have a sense of a profound common ground of our humanity, then we risk very easily of falling into an abyss of meaninglessness. John Main believed that meditation creates community. That's our being here uh, this week is a, is a proof of that. It does create community or reveal community and nourish community. And community may be one of the most immediate and possible things that we can do to contribute to our journey through this crisis, to build community, networks, real, personal, human, grounded networks like as, as we are as we are beginning to do in Bombo, and as the world community, the Monastery Without Walls, has been doing for 40 years. We know the symptoms of hyper-distraction. We see it tragically in very young children today. We see it in the, um, the high level of, of uh, human error in, in medicine. We see it in uh, political debate, the inability to pay attention a depersonalization of relationships, the lack of visionary leadership, whether in politics or religion or in business. And above all, perhaps, in our society today, the symptom of fear, fear as a way of life, fear that is behind every corner behind every door we open, the, the, the chronic anxiety that we are going to be threatened. And therefore, how easily we surrender our hard-won liberties in order to be secure. And at the personal level, loneliness, the increasing problem of loneliness. In Britain recently, there were a government minister was appointed as the Minister of Loneliness. This may have been connected with Brexit, of course. <laughs> and then 
spiritually, religiously speaking, is nothing sacred. What is religion? What is spirituality? Are they connected? Are they necessarily connected? Or is there really nothing but relativism? Is there nothing sacred? For Aristotle and for Aquinas, the goal of human life was contemplation. It's one of the oldest, the deepest insights into the purpose of life. Contemplation, however we describe it, the vision of the good, the contemplation of God. The difference was that in earlier times, for Aristotle, for example, contemplation was the goal of life if you had the money for it and the social status. It wasn't for women, it wasn't for slaves. And even in the medieval Christian worldview, contemplation was the preserve of the religious, the consecrated men and women who you know, left family life in order to live in a cloister. We speak a lot about globalization. It has good and bad effects, no doubt. But certainly one form of globalization that we should be aware of is the globalization of contemplation. The globalization of a consciousness that this is what the human being, male, female, young, old, gay, straight, Muslim, Christian, this is our common goal. So we can talk a lot more about what contemplation means, but perhaps the most important thing is that we taste it. The word for wisdom in Latin, sapientia, comes from sapere, which means to taste. So I'd like to conclude this uh, introduction to the theme of the seminar by taking a short period of meditation, a time of silence that will prepare us to enter into a rich time of dialogue, of exchange, of listening, from which I hope we will all emerge better equipped to contribute to the healing of the wounds of division and to the raising of consciousness in our world. So let me just take a few moments to introduce uh, a short time of meditation. The three elements of contemplation we could describe as silence, stillness, and simplicity. In the Christian understanding, this is contemplative prayer or the prayer of the heart. And again, in the Christian understanding, as a way of prayer, this leads us into the experience of the mind of Christ or the prayer of the Spirit. But every tradition will have its own way of describing this experience. But in the experience itself, when we don't need to think about it or describe it, we can find the common ground between us. 
So first of all, silence. During this short time of meditation, we will try to sit, we will, to be as silent as possible. Physically silent. And that external silence is only the first step towards a more interior silence of the mind. And we will all discover, and we shouldn't be frightened of this, just how busy and noisy our minds are. In fact, the first step to becoming more attentive, conscious, clear human beings is to discover and realize our level of distraction. So the first challenge we face after we have sat down and become, started to become silent is how to deal with the high level of mental activity, which is like surfing the internet or surfing you know, from one channel to the other on cable TV. So this is why we need a contemplative practice to help to focus the mind. Let me share with you the way that we teach from our tradition. It is to take a, a single word or a short phrase and to repeat this word or phrase, the same word, the same phrase, continuously during the time of the meditation. This means to say, that the goal of meditation as a practice, immediate practice, is not to blank out your mind and get rid of all your thoughts. If you wanted to do that, you could have a few Belgian beers. <laughs> so the first goal is not just to blank out your mind, but it is to return to your word, to your mantra. That's the, the art of meditation in this tradition to sit down, to sit still, to close your eyes lightly, and then gently to begin to repeat your word interiorly, silently. And when the mind wanders, whether it's onto good thoughts, bad thoughts, great thoughts or silly thoughts, we lay aside all thoughts. As one of the Desert Fathers said, Prayer is the laying aside of thoughts. So the art is to keep returning to the word gently, without force, faithfully, and simply like a child. Choosing the word is important because we stay with the same word. Obviously, if you have your own way of meditation, I encourage you to stay with that, or your own word to stay with that, but the word we recommend is the word Maranatha. Maranatha is an ancient prayer word in our tradition, in Aramaic, the language of Jesus. It means, come Lord. If you choose this word, say it as four syllables. Ma-ra-na-tha. Ma-ra-na-tha. So during the meditation, Try and sit as still as you can. Sit still, physically still. That will help you come to a stillness of mind. And approach this short time of meditation in a very simple way, without analyzing or evaluating yourself.
So we'll meditate now for a few minutes. <laughs> 